Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode 139. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, so this is uh, the kickoff of another two-parter, right? We're, We're interviewing Eric Brooker. So Eric is an interesting dude, and this is another very cool story that I ran into on LinkedIn, connected with Eric, sold him on being on the show, and what we found out was that Eric actually went into the sales profession. I know that's kind of a dirty word for some people. He learned the trade. It wasn't just something he was born with the ability to do, and he we get to learn a little bit about leadership and the life of what a sales leader is like. I'd really like people to look forward to hearing about what he says about personality types and which personality types are are good at being salespeople. Maybe not what you expect. And then that move from individual contributor to leadership, uh, leadership, what good reasons are and what bad reasons are. Oh, and we should also uh, mention up top that Eric has a podcast called The Council Culture. Um, it was formerly called The New Norm, if you maybe heard about it uh, in that form. Uh, the episode I have queued up in my reader or podcatcher right now is episode five on uh, shame and the stories we tell ourselves. Um, so I'm really looking forward to listening to that one. With that in mind, let's listen to part one with Eric Booker. Eric Brooker, welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. So does this make me an official nerd? This is actually a really cool opportunity. I appreciate you guys having me on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, we'll get you your certified stickers and, and everything. <laughs> we will I send you it. stickers. <laughs> Can you uh, give us a brief overview of who you are and what it is that you do right now? Yeah, absolutely. Again, thanks so much for having me on the show. So a little bit about me. Uh, my wife and I live with our seven kids in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're actually just east of St. Paul, Minnesota. I have been in tech sales or tech sales leadership for the better part of the last 20, gosh, 21 years now. Currently, I'm two years in with a company called Big Leaf Networks. Uh, again, we're a technology firm based out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've got the pleasure of working with what I believe are some of the best people that I've worked with uh, in my 21-year career. What was it that made you want to get into sales, first of all, and then sales leadership, if you don't mind just sharing some of that? Yeah, so sales is one of those. And I talk to a lot of people in the interview process as as they're interviewing for sales roles with my company or even previous companies. What I find is I fell into the same vein as so many people do is there's this mystique. If you can get past, and it took me a long time, but if you can get past the dirty word, the four-letter word that is sales, and be comfortable in your own skin as a as a person 
as a salesperson, as a sales leader, there's so much upside. For me, at 20 years old, with a wife who was pregnant, with our first, it was all about the money. It was all about the opportunity to make a pretty significant advancement financially in my career. I hadn't finished college, and it was time to grow up. My wife was pregnant. We had a kid on the way. I wanted... I had these visions of her staying home, which we've been really fortunate to be able to do over the years. But to do that, I had to make some sacrifices. And stepping into sales, A, is a little natural for me because it's in the blood, if you will. Uh, my parents both owned their own business. But in terms of sales leadership, this is something that I think I've evolved in over the years. I found myself getting into sales because of the money. I found myself successful mostly on the backs of some really amazing sales leaders that simply told me what to do and how to do it. And I learned that if I did what they told me to do, I was going to be successful. That's not always the case. I had really great sales leaders early in my career and I wanted to give back. I wanted to see other people succeed the same way that I've found success over the years and sales leadership has been that avenue for me. Can you take us a little bit into that um, initial transition into sales as a 20-year-old? You know, not many people have a real understanding of what that path into technology sales, um, as opposed to kind of, you know, door-to-door or retail sales is. Yeah, for me, it was one of those retails, and, and this is, everything's different for everybody. For me, the idea of sitting back at a retail facility and waiting for someone to come to me, that just wasn't going to work for me. I wanted to go out and I wanted to get the business. Now, very early in my career, that meant door to door. I worked with businesses, but to work with businesses and earn their trust, and for that matter, earning their business, you've got to go door to door. So very early in my career, I was out knocking on doors. I would walk into a my territory, which at the time was a, a very specific zip code in the Phoenix area, I'd go knock on doors. I'd collect business cards. I'd have conversations on a Monday. And then on a Tuesday, I'd go through all those business cards and I'd call all the people that I, that I had prospected the day before following up, trying to see if there was an opportunity. You know, if the woman at the front desk or the guy at the front desk gave me John's contact information as the decision maker, I'd be calling, asking for John the next day, talk about how I was just in his office, leveraging customers in and around his building to just try and find a, an, an opportunity for me to earn that next customer. And I'll tell you, it was not easy. It was not easy because I was young. It was not easy because so many of my friends were out partying and doing all the things that 20-year-olds do. But the one thing that really got me early was the opportunity to afford my wife this vision that we had of her staying at home with the kids. And again, we've got seven kids now. She stayed at home for 21 years and it's been a really, it's been a great ride thus far. And so I wouldn't trade it for the world. Sales is also one of those, not for the weak at heart, you know, in that month after month, we have sales goals. Month after month, we have sales objectives and you can absolutely knock it out of the park in June and then July 1st hits 
and you got to do it all over again. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. When it's rewarding, it's very, very rewarding. But again, I've seen a lot of people succeed over the years, and that brings me a lot of joy just the same. Do you see multiple paths or, or types of personalities that are going to succeed at that type of work? Or is it like dominant in one one type of personality, one type of, be it like the extrovert versus the introvert or the um, the person who doesn't take rejection well versus the person who, you know, doesn't doesn't pay attention to rejection? I think some of that's a great question. I think some of it's a learned behavior. I don't think any of us take rejection well. Let's just call it what it is. When a customer says no to me or a customer says no to you, when anybody says no and we're looking for a yes, it's disheartening. I think for me, I've had a unique ability to just move on. I've rarely, if ever, taken it personally. No one's that I know of, no one's ever not done business with Eric Brooker because they didn't like me as a person. They chose not to do business with me because they didn't need my product. They didn't need my service. Or maybe, which is common in, in technology, they were just in a contract with another service provider and couldn't make a change then. So I've never been one to think that it was ever a personal attack on me. But again, I don't think sales is for the faint at heart. You're going to get no's. I don't know that there's an introvert versus extrovert. I think the extrovert tends to maybe find success a little easier because they're outgoing. They're looking for opportunities. I have a lot of people ask me, how is it that you do what you do? And 21 years into doing this, I don't even know that I'm doing anything different than just being myself. I'll say at the beginning of my sales career, at the beginning of my professional career, I had to look for those opportunities. I think an introvert can be as successful. They have to be able to take rejection. But I think for the technology, for the industry that I've chosen, I think extroverts are going to be very, very successful. But for the more complex sales, you might have an introvert that's more detail-oriented. I'm probably not suited for the detail-oriented sale. I'm not a detail-oriented guy. So I have found a niche that works really, really well for me from a sales and sales leadership perspective. But yeah, I think anybody can do anything. Gosh, I I hate to sound like a horrible quote in an office somewhere, but I think anyone can do anything they want if they just simply set their mind to it. For me, in the last year or so, growing professionally has been about reading a lot of books. If you're not a salesperson by nature, go pick up some books. There are some absolutely phenomenal books out there. Give it a whirl. There's nothing wrong with trying a new profession. Here we are. Gosh, I hope we're at the tail end of COVID. We're in what the world is calling the great resignation. People have spent the last year and a half cooped up, locked up in their homes, sitting at their desks, working away, and they're frustrated. They don't like what they do anymore. That might be salespeople looking to get into operations. That might be an operations person or an engineer wanting to get into sales. Try something new. There's very little risk. And dare I say, now's the time because everyone out there is looking to do something different right now. We'll have to put some of your book recommendations in the show notes. Do you have a couple that just come to mind off the top here? We love book recommendations because I happen to be an Audible junkie personally. You know, for the first time in probably two years, I'm out of Audible credits at the moment. And I've got like three books that I want to read. And it's a little defeating. I have to ask you the question though, Nick, what speed do you listen to most books at? Just the normal 1x. Like I, I can't go any faster than that because I tend to take notes on it 
at the same time. Like I listen while I stretch my back. I listen while I do the laundry, while I go for a walk. If it's faster, I don't process it as well. That's fair. So I listen at about 1.6, 1.7, but I pause it to make all sorts of notes. You should see I am a mess when it comes to notes on Audible. The most relevant and probably game-changing book professionally. Now, we're just talking sales books right now because I could go off on books for days. The most relevant sales book that I've ever read is a book by a guy named Skip Miller. We talked about it just before the show started. It's called Proactive Selling. It talks about some of the basics. It kind of turns sales upside down, how to leave a voicemail, how to get someone to help you, how to get a return phone call, how to get a return email, all the things that salespeople struggle with. And I'll tell you, from my perspective, I was forced to read it in, boy, I'm going to remember it was probably November of 2012 because I had an opportunity in January of 2013 to meet Skip Miller at a presentation that he gave. Phenomenal book, great author. There's another book, I think it's called Above the Line, Below the Line. He's a great author. Skip Miller really does a great job of not just turning things upside down, but explaining why he's doing it, and it works. That's awesome. I want to go back to one thing you said earlier about you get a lot of no's and you don't take it personally. So as a salesperson, how do you know when no means no and I don't need to press anymore? I think we have to be honest with ourselves. I actually think another sale, a sales leader or another salesperson to bounce some of these things off of. I do a lot of peer reviews in my business where I'll have... John and Nick, two salespeople on my team, meet with me for, let's say, John's one-on-one or a larger team meeting. John will come prepared to talk about a win that he's expecting later this month or a deal that he's forecasting later this month. Nick, you are uh, sort of an innocent bystander looking at this situation. And when done well, and when you have the right relationship with people, you can you you can ask questions that John's not thinking of because John's already cashed the paycheck. You can tell John, hey, John, I'll be honest with you, man. I don't think you're going to win that deal. And here's why. So I think the peer reviews are having an honest conversation with yourself, your spouse, your boss. But I also think, you know, I, I, I hate to quote Skip Miller already after just referencing his book, but he does talk about the yeses are great. The noes are great. It's the maybes that will kill you. We tend to move forward from the no's very quickly. We tend to move to contract with the yeses. What happens, Nick, is when John says maybe, I can put that in my CRM. I can put that in salesforce.com as a maybe. I'm going to push it out a month. I'm going to wait till he gets back from Disneyland with his family. Then I'm going to call him again and he's going to say maybe again. John, I'm better suited for you to just say, no, we're not doing business. I'm in a contract. I'm unhappy. I don't like you. Whatever reason you've chosen not to do business with me, the no is that much better. I think if someone says no, if we can be honest with ourselves and it is definitively a no, just move on. You're better off moving on than trying to salvage a deal that you're never going to win anyway. That's great advice. And do you think people are afraid to say no? Oh, gosh, I live in passive aggressive St. Paul, Minnesota, where nobody wants to say no. I had a a joke. Actually, my first boss in this industry, 21 years ago, Jake Peterson took me out to lunch my first week here in St. Paul. And he said, Eric, they will invite you over for dinner. They will allow you the opportunity to date their daughter, but they will never say no to you. I think that we as salespeople 
don't give customers the opportunity to say no. We, we make it awkward and it would be better for us and our relationships and our time. Your time is worth something. Value your time. Give them the opportunity to say yes. And when you afford them the opportunity to say yes, you're affording them the opportunity to say no. I do think that people are a little timid in saying no, but I think it's incumbent upon us to meet them where they want to be met. Meaning, if we know they're not going to say no over the phone, send an email. Give them the opportunity to say no. Uh, some people want to do business via text. I personally hate texting. I hate the idea that a, that one of that I'm a buyer for something and they want to transact via text. I'll say no via text. The guy didn't have the courtesy to call me anyway. But we have to meet people where they want to be met. If you're a voice communication person, pick up the phone, give them an opportunity to say yes or no. If you're a texter, email, whatever. Go stop by their office if that's their thing. But yeah, I think people are reserved. I mean, I don't know if either one of you were married. I'm married. I had plenty of no's along the way to get to a yes. But though all the women I dated, women have a hard time saying no. I had a hard time saying no. I think that's just a sort of a natural part of of who we are as people. That's very interesting. And it actually reminds me of a sales leader I had once who said it was almost like a self-reflection. He said, our sales organization takes too long to lose a deal. So instead of it- Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Instead of it being lost in the, you know, understanding that the deal was going to be lost within a week or two weeks or a month, it took 18 months to realize the deal yep. was lost. Absolutely. It's because we don't want to be honest with ourselves. I've done it plenty of times. It's the end of the month. We want to say that the deal pushed and we want to do it because there's metrics because our boss is looking at the metrics. Either we have a quota that we have to attain or we've attained our quota or the month is over. So we're going to push it into next month because we didn't do enough forecasting. Or I beg your pardon. We didn't do enough prospecting the month previous. So the next month looks light. So if I just push those deals into next month, I'm going to get a little leeway from my boss as I build up the funnel. Just be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your boss. Hey, the funnel sucks, boss, but it's it's accurate. How many times can you say that it's accurate before, hey, Eric, you're not really performing at the level we need you to perform. We need you to we need you to sell more stuff. How can we make that happen? I think that we forget that any business you're in, any of your listeners, we're in a people business. Whether you're an engineer, whether you're the grocer, you're a, a bagger at a grocery store, or you're a salesperson, people are going through life. And I think before you tell someone, hey, Nick, you're not great at your job. Nick, you're not selling enough stuff. You need to sell more or you're fired or you need to sell more or we're going to have to put you on plan. I think one of the things that I've learned to do fairly well because of the leaders that I had over the years is be empathetic, is care, know what's going on in people's life because it's easier for us to empathize with them if we understand what's going on. Maybe they just lost their sister-in-law. I lost my sister-in-law really unexpectedly in October and I had all the leniency in the world for a few months for my boss because he took the time to understand what I was going through. He was very empathetic and they cared well for me. I do think sales in large part, what we're going through aside, it's an activity game. It literally is just a matter of doing enough activity to get enough results 
figuring out what that necessary activity is each and every month, each and every quarter, each and every year to replicate hitting quota, exceeding quota, hitting your goals and exceeding your goals. If we're measuring the activity and the activity is right eye to boss Keith Hatley eight years ago, the guy that quote unquote forced me to read uh, proactive selling all those years ago. Keith did a great job. I had a nasty slump. I hadn't sold hardly anything for three or four months. And he said, Eric, listen, I was on the verge of being fired. I had no doubt that Keith was losing patience. He was saving me from his boss. And we had some tough conversations. And when I thought I was getting fired, he goes, Eric, you're doing all the right things right now. Your activity is exactly what it should be. Keep, we all hit a slump. Keep doing what you're doing and we'll get, we'll get past this. That's okay. And sure enough, a couple months later, we got past it and I had a great career there. I was really excited about my time there. Keith is still very much a close friend. I think the world of him as a leader, but it's because it wasn't, Hey, pack your crap and get moving. This isn't working. He understood what I was going through and got to know me as a person, which I think not just sales, but I think in business, we forget to do. That reminds me, um, I think of some of the decision-making books that I've read. Uh, maybe the latest one was Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, who's a former professional pro- professional poker player. And okay. a lot of it is about is doing the right activities, you know, and controlling the things that you can control, right? I can control whether or not I make a certain number of phone calls, whether I brainstorm on ideas for my customer base or the people that I'm I'm serving, and in doing a certain number of activities. Now, there is a certain amount of chance that's involved that's outside of my control. And poker players would say, you know, how the deck was shuffled, you know, the person ahead of me, like what decisions they made, right? And, and we certainly have that in sales. But if you control all the things that you can control and make all the right decisions along the way, eventually the tide will turn in your favor, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that wasn't a question. That's a that's a famous John White. That wasn't a question. That was just an observation. <laughs> it's just the John White chime in. I know it's a good observation. You're right. And sales is one of those very the results are obvious. They're they're right there in your face because of the metrics being tracked, and it seems like it's almost more outcome oriented than other professions, or maybe people just think that. I think well. I'm going to, I'm going to speak as the frustrated sales leader for just a moment. I think we think that because the numbers are on a whiteboard or the numbers are on a C in our CRM or the numbers are more public. But if you're a developer, you should have deadlines and you should, we should all know whether or not you're making those deadlines. If you're in customer service, there are absolutely metrics that we keep in customer service to make sure that you're doing the job. Unfortunately, Sales is the big one. Candidly, sales is the one that oftentimes generates the bulk, if not all of the revenue for the company to employ everybody else. So when sales are down, everybody notices. The challenge is I would argue that everybody's job needs to be managed in a similar fashion. I would love to see a customer service scoreboard or uh, a, a development scoreboard. Have we, have we hit the last six metrics? relative to developing the newest product, yes or no. And we, we don't do that. So I think, Nick, by by nature of sales, we get a lot more visibility, but everybody's job's measurable. Success and failure are absolutely measurable. 100%. Could be the measurability of that next 
upgrade of the software in your data center, public cloud, wherever it is. Exactly. Yeah, that's the um, the fact that one of the metrics is so so measurable, right? The the dollars that were that were cashed, the checks that were cashed, the amount of money that was transferred into the bank account is super super measurable, and some of the other stuff is a little bit a little bit feels a little bit more ephemeral. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting that you know you mentioned that it is an inter- it's a good time to to think about entering into the sales game. You know, in sales, so often we refer back to sales movies, right? And and the one that like immediately pops into my mind is Boiler Room, where oh yeah, the, the guy you know the the sales leader says every time you call a sale is made, like either you sell them or they sell you on the idea that they don't need your stuff, right? And and I would argue that almost every job involves some facet of sales. Like, you know, in customer service, you need to sell the customer on the idea that your I what you are recommending is what they need, right? That that your their solution, their problem is going to be solved by your expertise and your recommendation of a series of actions. And that, you know, if you're if you're an architect, you're trying to sell somebody on the, your ideas about, you know, how this uh, system or solution or building or software is being architected. And you you still have to convince people to, to go in your direction. But we always like that's everywhere. Do you want fries with that? That's an upsell. I'm going through the car wash the other day. I can get the nine dollar car wash. The $16 car wash or the deluxe, the deluxe for $33. And I go and I push like the six or $9 button and the guy walks up because, sir, you're not interested in the deluxe wash today. It's $5 off. That's a sales conversation. You guys, Nick, you reached out to me to ask if I'd be interested in joining the podcast. That was a sales call. 100%. That was absolutely a sales call. We, and again, I talked about this when I first got started in sales. I had some shame. I don't know if this is where we were going, but I had, a little shame in my brother's a lawyer and my buddy's going to medical school and all these people are doing all these things that aren't sales. I own it. We're all in sales to some degree. I sold my wife. We've been married for, shoot, almost 17 years. Like, we're all in sales to some degree. You go interview for a job, that is the best, almost, I'll say getting getting married for me, but one of the best sales jobs of your entire life is when you interview for a job. You're selling the hiring manager on the fact that you are without question the best candidate for the job. You may have no experience whatsoever, but you're still walking in there to have a sales conversation about a non-sales related role. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good lesson for, for people who are looking to accelerate their technical careers or their sales careers. Like, you know, you have to approach um, your career as a product that and yourself as a product that you are selling and the upgrade, you know, like, don't you want the deluxe version? You know, it's $5 yeah. off is exactly what you're trying to say to your boss. Like, Hey, you're telling me that you don't want like, you know, John white 2.0. That's fine. <laughs> if you want to stay on 1.0, like you'll get 1.0, but Hey, does John white 2.0 have hair or no? No, unfortunately. <laughs> That was John White, 0.5. Okay. Yep. I got that one. You and me both, John. <laughs> no, that's good, though. I mean, if if you want John 2.0, here's how much it's going to cost you because I want to raise. Yeah, absolutely. And we got to be scared. 
we, we can't be scared. Excuse me. We can't be scared to have that conversation right now. You as the employee have the upper hand in almost every environment. People are really qualified, skilled people are really hard to come by. And I just went through this experience. I won't say when, but in the last couple of years, I went through the experience of asking for a raise. And if you're good at what you do and someone sees the value in what you do, there should be no shame in asking for more money. Especially if you're continuing to grow and mature as a person. John, you and I have talked about books. Read books. Go to, go to seminars. Go to conferences. Continue to better yourself. You're going to stand out in that type of environment versus the other 300 people in the same role at the same company that get in at 805 and leave at 4, 450 every day. Cause they all exist in droves or 355. Yeah. Or three. That's right. That's right. Too funny. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from an individual contributor to a leader in your, in your job role? What, what the decision looked like, you know, was it just the only way to advance or was it, you felt like, you know, leadership was a calling that just felt better than being an individual contributor in sales? What, what did that look like? Ooh, if I'm honest with myself, no one's going to listen to this anyway, right? So <laughs> if, if I'm honest with myself, I think initially, all those years ago, it was probably about the prestige. It was about the opportunity to do something that I hadn't done before. There was more money. I had been working towards Keith Hatley. I talked about Keith earlier. Keith did not promote me the first time he had the opportunity to promote me for a variety of different reasons. And it was a bit of a gut punch because I was one of the most successful guys in the entire company. I was a mentor to a number of people. I felt like I had earned my stripes and Keith's like, you're not ready yet. So when I had the opportunity, I wanted the money. I wanted the prestige. I'll tell you, the first go round was incredibly difficult because I was everybody's friend at the office and I wanted to continue to be everybody's friend at the office, except that's not my job anymore. My job now is to do everything in my power to make Nick and John successful in their roles to support them. And I think initially speaking, I had this idea that they reported to me and, you know, they're going to do what I tell them to do when I tell them to do it and how I tell them to do it. When over the years, what I've learned is it's just the opposite. I've got a team of uh, seven people right now that I support. I think there's a very different way of looking at it. I, I function each and every day to remove any and all obstacles that may get in their way, to run appointments with them when crisis hits their family, to basically do anything necessary to support them. That includes coaching them. So we talk at the beginning of the month about forecast. We talk every week on one-on-ones. What are you forecasting? What's changed? How can I help? What do you need from me? What do you need from the company to be successful? Out of the gates, I took the job for the prestige and the money. And I was not successful. I was fortunate to have a sec, sort of a second go at sales leadership. And again, I've had some great mentors over the years that really reminded me what sales leadership is all about. At the same time, I don't think it's for everybody. And this goes not just for sales and sales leadership, but we have a tendency in, in business and in small business, which is mostly what runs America is to take people that are successful in their role and promote them into a leadership role. So John's an engineer. John's a really good engineer. John gets all the projects done really early. 
John, we're going to make you a manager of engineers and you're going to manage 10 people. Well, John, that's not your passion at all. I have not taken the time to get to know what your passion, what your skill set is, what your desire is, what your future career goals and aspirations are. I just know that you've hit the top of the pay scale and that you're really good at what you do. So we're going to make you a manager of people. And you know what? Generally speaking, what John doesn't want to do, John doesn't want to manage people. John's an engineer because John's really good at engineering. John may want to engineer a different product or may want to work on a different team in the same organization, but John may not want to be an engineering manager. And so I think we forget that sometimes that just because you've quote unquote mastered the skill set of the role that you're in doesn't mean you're the next obvious choice to take on that managerial managerial role. I think, again, I've been fortunate to have some great mentors over the years that taught me what it means to be a leader. I didn't just happen to fall into that. I had great mentors. And again, I think out of the gates, I was successful in my role. People didn't know what to do with me. So they just made me a manager. It's funny you mentioned that. I had someone tell me the other day, I don't have to be as good as this person is at their individual contributor job to fill the shoes of the manager of that person. Yeah. And and yep. that's what it reminded me of as you were talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, again, I think it starts with empathy. Some people aren't built for it. I think if given the opportunity, we all want to strive for that next promotion. Oftentimes we want to strive for the money. But I think we got to do a real good gut check and decide, is this even something I want to do? Am I going to be good at this? Can I can I shift gears from being someone's friend to being someone's boss? Because I'll tell you, the really crappy thing with that comes with being a boss is you get to hire people. You get, they don't know this, but I get to promote two people later this month. I am over the moon at that opportunity because they have both absolutely earned it. You know what I also have to do. I've got to have really tough conversations with people. I have to fire people. I have to put people on performance plans. I have to work with HR to to help people exit the business that have been here three, four, five years. And that's really difficult. I'll tell you, the toughest day of my professional career is any time I've ever had to terminate anybody. And when you're just just an individual contributor, you don't have to do any of that. So I think we have to do a real gut check, sales leadership or engineering leadership or whatever type of managerial role you're in. It's really hard and it sucks documenting stuff. Let's be honest. When you have a tough conversation with someone, you've got to document all that stuff. Some people just aren't cut out for that and that's okay. So I guess the real question is um, not what got you into sales leadership, but what kept you in sales leadership. And it sounds like some of the upsides were things that you were really passionate about. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I love helping people. I think naturally I've been the guy over the years that wants to help. I love watching people succeed. I think that there are times where I look at people and think, you're so much better than this. There's so much opportunity out there. And I feel like for me, the fun part is sitting with someone and helping them realize that they're better than I ever was at the role, but they haven't identified that yet. Yeah, so one of the things that's been so fun for me is just watching people succeed. Uh, a gentleman by the name of John O'Leary that I just had on the podcast, he's written a couple of books, phenomenal books. One is In Awe, one is On Fire. He talks about living a life of significance 
over a life of success. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have the nice cars and the big house on the hill and all that, but it's more important to live a life of of significance. And I find a lot of significance in helping other people achieve their goals, in helping other people find the success that they've always dreamed of, but for whatever reason, they haven't found it just yet. Now, with your move into leadership, since this is a customer-facing team of people that you're leading, do you miss the customer interaction that was so frequent before? Because I imagine it's probably not as much now, or am I reading that wrong? No, it's not often enough. It's not often. It's not often enough. I absolutely miss it. I think that there are times where I have the opportunity to slide in and help our salespeople. I think at the same time, it's not my job to walk in and be the salesperson. And what I mean by that is I need to afford my salesperson to do their job. Oftentimes, it's not much more than me sitting on introducing myself as the VP of sales, letting them know that the company is bigger than the one salesperson that they've met thus far. So even when I get to sit on those calls, oftentimes I don't feel like I offer a whole lot. I'll do what I'm asked to do. I'll step in if there's a need to step in. But yeah, more often than not, I'm not on those sales calls. I'm having conversations about those sales calls, but I'm not in the day-to-day, in the trenches, as a lot of people say. Right. You're just there to say smart manager things, right? Well, I, I, in fact, I just give them my printed business card that says VP of sales because I'm not keen on saying smart things. No, I just, I think I'm it's important. Teasing. Yeah, no, I know. I think it's important though that ultimately the customer's relationship is with the salesperson. And I want to be respectful of that. I think those of us in sales leadership, the worst that we can do is walk in and act like we're somehow better or different than the salesperson that they've been dealing with and try and say all these smart things when in fact, the reason that I've been afforded the opportunity to sit in the room with the customer is because the salesperson has gotten us this far. So yeah, I don't offer much, unfortunately, when I'm in that room other than maybe just some coaching for the salesperson, but I do miss it. I love the opportunity to get involved with customers for sure. How about that? How about the pressures of leadership. I imagine, you know, you have to be accountable to your management and how is the interaction with your management in your role as a leader different or the same than it was when you were an individual contributor? Boy, it feels a lot different. That's a really good question. I don't know that it is a whole lot different because instead of me talking about the sales that I'm going to close this month as a forecast to my boss, I'm rolling up a much larger number to my boss, one of the founders of the company, and we're having different conversations. So I would say my conversations to be tend to be more driven by the overall strategy of the organization, how we can grow the sales organization, not just by adding headcount, but how can we be more efficient? Do we have the right sales methodology? Do we have the right product? I was in a product conversation today. So sometimes I'll tell you, being customer facing, I miss the conversation. We just talked about that. I miss being out in the field. I mean, there's days, if not weeks on end, where I'm having strategy conversations with the founder of the company. And I'd rather be out doing sales related things. But I, I do recognize that when done right, not to say I do it right all the time, but when done right, and I can really help move the needle for my whole team relative to the overall strategy and things like that. But the day-to-day, 
may look different, but the overall objectives are the same. My objective is my team's objective times seven because I've got a team of seven right now. So it's their objective multiplied by seven. So I hit the overall number. The challenge is when we don't hit the number, I've got to go to the founder or the board of directors and have a conversation. And that history tells me is way more uncomfortable or can be more uncomfortable than just going to your boss and say, hey, man, I, I blew it this month. My wife was really sick. I had COVID. Sorry, it won't happen again. Like I get to do that as a salesperson a lot of times. But going to the board of directors can be a much more daunting task for sure. That's a really interesting contrast that you're, you're bringing up. That when you when you're doing roll up reporting and delivering bad news, it's a little bit more like saying there's something that's systemically or there's at least the possibility of something that's systemically wrong, not just individuals, you know, individual performances that have gone wrong. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's another book Monty Moran wrote called Love is Free, Guac is Extra. He was the CEO of Chipotle for about 12 years. And he talks about one of the things that Monty does incredibly well. I had an opportunity to talk to him a few months ago. He asks questions incredibly well, and he's wildly transparent. So if you ask him a question, you're going to get the answer. I think one of the things that I've done well over the years I just give it to people the way that it is. And unfortunately, sometimes when you have to go to the founder of the company and say, Hey, it's July 1st and we're going to, we're going to really suck wind this month. We're not in a position to have a good month, but here are all the things that we're going to do to try and make the bet, the best of a really bad situation. I have a tendency to just have those tough conversations early. I know a lot of salespeople as well as sales leaders try and avoid that until the very end. So it's the last day of the month. Your boss thinks that you're somehow going to close 90% of the business for the month in the last four hours of the month. And we've sold them that because we don't want to be honest with ourselves. And then you know what happens? Then I got to pick up the phone and I, John, I'm, gosh, man, I'm really sorry. You know what? A couple things fallen differently. We would have been in a better spot, but the customer cut out a little early because it's a Friday. It's just have an honest conversation. Just say, Hey, we didn't do what we needed to in June to have the type of July that we need to have. And here's what we need to prepare for. So I think it's important to just be really honest with ourselves. And once we're honest with ourselves, we can have a really honest conversation with those around us. fascinated by this idea that Eric had about not, or his answer to my question about not allowing people to say no or not giving them the opportunity to say no. Think about it. When you're trying to persuade someone to buy something, to do something for you, to act in a certain way, you want them to say yes. But are we really allowing and accepting people's no's? And are they even willing to say no in the first place because they don't they have this fear of hurting our feelings. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think the idea of, you know, maybe as a killer, right? And uh, it made me, you know, think about the number of times that I've said maybe to someone when I really just didn't want to say no. Eric also mentioned that one of the things he was able to do was see the potential in other people. He could see that they had the potential to be better than they were. And he wanted to 
be the person to help them get there just as others had helped him develop his skills when he was an individual contributor. Yeah, I think uh, empathy was a big part of that. And uh, it came up a couple different times. One, when he was being managed with empathy, and another time when he was uh, managing one of his reports with empathy. I, I think, you know, that was really interesting. And, it, you know, maybe something that, like, organizations should select for in managers, it, at least on the management team. Really thought-provoking there. Not something that I'd necessarily thought, oh, wow, you know, great managers should have empathy. I'm not sure exactly what I thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Maybe you don't have enough empathy, John. <laughs> I don't really care if I do or not. I want to make sure that we plug the Council Culture podcast again. I found it very, very interesting. I think I already talked about the episode that I'm about to listen to. Make sure that if you enjoyed hearing what Eric had to say, that you go check out that podcast. Very, very interesting. I also want to mention in part two, we're going to talk a little bit about some time that Eric took away from the job and how that's really helped and how that made him rethink um, getting away from work. Um, I don't want to spoil too much about that, but uh, definitely very interesting. Uh, anything else before we get out of here, Nick? No, I don't want to give it away. I'm I'm on pins and needles waiting to see what happens myself. Just a reminder, again, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at V Journeyman, and I really do care about what you think and how you're doing. I'm here saying goodbye for Nick Cordy, whom I also care about, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Just remember, John cares about you.